Hello, you're listening to the Academy Securities Geopolitical and Macro Strategy Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Robinson, and today's podcast is a recording from a webinar we held in June of 2023. This webinar focused on artificial intelligence, the power, the potential, and the risks. Contributors to this conversation included our head of macro strategy, Peter Chur, and two of our geopolitical intelligence group members, Rear Admiral Danelle Barrett and Lieutenant General Michael Groen. Here's Peter to start the conversation. AI has been a huge topic of conversation. Um, you know, it really started with, you know, chat GBT taking the world by storm. And since then, I think everyone's discussing what does this mean for companies? What does this mean for markets? What does this mean for the economy? And that's really what we're going to explore. So we're very lucky today that we've got uh, retired General Michael Gruen, who just retired about a year ago. He was last responsible for AI within the Marine Corps and a lot of work within the Department of Defense. He's working with a lot of corporations, so he brings that. Danelle Barrett's been with us for a couple of years now. She's had a really interesting role when she was an admiral in the Navy. She was in charge of uh, Navy cyber attack capacity. So I think we often talk about cyber from a defensive strategy. So she's done that, but she also has a unique perspective. has been very involved with AI and walking through companies. And so we're going to get this webinar started. And really, we'll turn it over to Danelle to set a framework for what some of these terms mean, how we're supposed to be thinking about it. Because, you know, there's machine learning, there's various types of AI. What are those framework that we're supposed to be thinking about this? Um, so companies can really start understanding how how this works. So I want to start off a little bit. Um, normally, I do what I call the nerd test. Um, I want to see who the biggest nerd in the room is. That helps us understand a little bit about um, how fast technology changes. And I ask people, you know, you know, if I asked you the question, how many devices do you have, computing devices, you know, how many would you say you have? And normally it'll start with one and then we go up there from there. And, and I can't see your, your responses today. So I'm just going to tell you, normally the number goes from anywhere from like 10 to 21. Um, so that's the number of personal computing devices you own personally. And when you think about that, people don't even bat an eye anymore if you say you own 10 personal devices, right? And so what does that mean to us in this world? It, I mean, what does that change just having an iPhone in your pocket? Well, it's changed everything. It's changed the way you live, the way you work, the way you move, everything, right? And so when we look at, you know, what is the world, what's happening in the world and how is AI playing into that? So you were in a world where we're living with exponentially accelerating and converging technology, right? And so the pace of the technology acceleration is what is really unprecedented here. Um, and so when you look at things like AI, we're looking at the pace of the AI and the impact it will have is similar to what you might consider with what happened with the automobile, the internet, and electricity. That's the level of, of innovation we're going to see. And so when you look at that accelerating, exponentially accelerating, converting technology, well, what does that mean, right? So let's take a look at the three examples that, that were wildly uh, important um, and impactful that when they converged, it changed the way we live. You know, the autonomous vehicle, electric car, and ride services, right? You know, a couple of years ago, you never heard of Uber or Lyft unless you were German and everything was Uber fantastic, right? Um, now, you use Uber and Lyft every day, and it's data-driven, right? And you look at autonomous vehicles. Autonomous vehicles weren't around a long time ago. Now, they're everywhere. Internet of things. It's happening. Data-driven, right? And you look at um, uh, uh, electric vehicles. They've been around for 30 years, but now they're everywhere. And again, data-driven. You combine those together, and that means kids born today will never own a car, and they'll never learn how to drive a car, they'll never be a pet boys anymore, there won't be car insurance, there won't be all the things that we know today, because we're living in a world now that is completely different, and by that accelerating technology. So the, the AI piece of this comes in where it's so important, is that every business is now a data business. If you hear the CEO of Levi speak, he says, I'm a software that sells genes. That's I guess it, right? This is a world where data is the product, and you are the product. When you get something free like a TV, you are the product, right? And it's impacted by that accelerating technology, and that AI specifically becomes the focal point. And so sometimes like, you'll hear terminology about AI out there, and you're like, okay, what does that exactly mean? So let's just break down a couple terms that we'll use a lot today so you're really comfortable with them. Because AI can sound really scary. You hear all these things like it's going to be doom and gloom and, you know, uh, the end of the world and dystopia, and then everything else, everybody else says, oh, it's going to be the best thing since sliced bread. I think the answer's in the middle, right? And so what you'll hear is you'll hear terms like algorithm. Algorithm is just a, uh, is instructions written for a computer to tell it what to do, to tell a computer what, how to act. You'll hear machine learning, which is a subcomponent of AI. That's to tell a computer how to develop intelligence. 
by looking at large data sets over a period of time and building up those data sets to kind of make predictive analysis of something, but they're not generating new content. AI is when the computers are trained by humans to perform tasks like humans that include things like reasoning and learning, and they're used to create things like chat. So you'll hear, like Peter mentioned, chat GPT. That's generative AI. That's another term you'll hear. And that's complex algorithms, those computer languages, and learning models and data sets that can predict words and write things based on words they've seen used before or pictures that have been used before and how they were described. So you'll see things like chat GPT, Berg um, programs, uh, uh, chinchilla, those kind of things are ones that are data, uh, uh, picture, uh, imagery focused, and they'll generate new content, new data. So you'll hear those terminologies, don't be uh, intimidated by them. But in that world, there's a global market now that's impacted by that artificial intelligence. You'll see things like China investing, the last 20 years they've invested in their digital China program, their their infrastructure to the tune in the next five years of $2.7 trillion because they want to become the AI leader in the world. What does that mean from a geopolitical perspective? And what does that mean to business? They're going to apply all that technology to business. So there's risk and opportunity. And I'll close really quick here with just a couple thoughts on that and turn it over to Mike and Peter again. There's going to be a lot of opportunity for changes in the workforce, efficiencies, improved safety, quality, um, you know, augmenting humans with intelligence, improved cybersecurity. But on the same time, there's going to be uh, limitations and uh, risk. You know, there's going to be people who regulate with not really understanding how to regulate this environment. That's really tough. How to use it for the bad. Cyber criminals, uh, they'll use it in a heartbeat. Life and death decisions, medical, military. Hey, can I use that? There, there's ethical considerations. Can I use that AI to make life or death decisions? And then you look at jobs that will disappear. AI hallucinations when the AI will actually lie to you. Um, and biases. And so, anyway, there's a lot that you need to think about, but what you need to think about is how am I going to start to implement this now? Because in that world of exponentially accelerating technology, you, you and your company cannot wait. You have to be doing it now. So I'll turn that back over. Thanks, that's great. And I think that's one point that, you know, as we've been preparing for this webinar that's really come through is, really every company, I think, is becoming an information technology company. So every company, I think, is going to have to think of themselves as an information technology company, how they're going to use that. And I would say one thing I think the markets have done so far is really gravitate to the obvious providers, whether it's chips or web services. And I don't think we've really started building in the efficiencies companies might be able to build in, right? It's not been this broad thing. So we've had markets really pick winners and kind of ignore the rest. But I think that's probably understating this because it's going to be truly important for companies across the board. And at that, Mike, why don't you kind of explain when you're asked to talk to a company or when you're thinking about this, how you think companies are supposed to be addressing AI and what it means for them? Yeah, great. Hey, thanks, Peter. Appreciate it. And uh, thanks, Danelle, for the for the introduction. Um, I, I think, you know, we there, there's there's a massive hype cycle. There's actually two massive hype cycles in play you know, at the moment. One is sort of hyping uh, the 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 opportunities and the power of AI. And the other one is hyping how dangerous AI is and how it's going to bring, you know, bring the deaths of society and everything in it. So, so neither one of those are really accurate uh, descriptions of what we're talking about here. Because I think, I think if you if you break it down, I mean, artificial intelligence is a very simple process, right? So, you know, in you know, at its core, it's a, it's using machines to to monitor data or review data and like a human be able to detect patterns or detect departures from patterns in that in that data so it's it's it it, it it's not uh you know it's not magic it's it all it does is really start to look at your data monitor your data and help you make better real-time decisions it's a very simple process actually and so when you think about it um we talk about um i i talk about artificial intelligence and uh so i i I just did part of the Department of Defense, you know, about a year ago, spent the last couple of years helping the services, military organizations, uh, military functions work through, like, how could they use data better? How could they be gain better cognition of what's happening around them? Uh, you know, human beings only have so much cognition to, 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 to uh, you know, to pay attention to all the different things that are going on. So AI is really about how do you use machines to help understand all the different things that are happening in your organization 
alert you to opportunities, alert you to threats, alert you to uh, uh, ways that you could integrate things. AI helps you do that in an organized way. So now, you, you know, if you were, uh, I, I, we articulate AI as transformational. And I think it's important to think about, this is not just like, you know, slapping a, a piece of technology onto a problem set. AI is transformational in the sense that uh, transform means the form changes, right? The way you do business changes because you're able to understand your, your cognitive layers are so much deeper. You're able to understand your business and your business cycles and your supply chain and your costs and your efficiency. You can, you can monitor and manage all of those and have machines help you derive insights from those things. Clearly, that's a value in a military context, right, where you want to understand what is the threat doing? Is the threat, uh, uh, you know, demonstrating a pattern? Has the threat departed from that pattern? Uh, what is the status of my logistic? Do I have enough gas to actually execute the operation that I, that I plan to execute? So those, those very simple questions become much more easily answered and in a much more integrated way when you actually instrument your operations. You actually have artificial intelligence algorithms monitoring your data, monitoring what's happening to you. So whether that's your, you know, your production statistics, your supply chain risks, your efficiency, your costs. If, if you the machines are helping you monitor all of those things because you don't have the cognition to be able to do all those things simultaneously, but the machines can and can give you alerts for, hey, you should pay attention to this. Hey, did you know your costs are increasing this month? Hey, did you know that your supply chain has a risk that's gonna impact your production in about three months? Like these are the kind of things that artificial intelligence will do for you. So it's a great uh, you know, guardian angel sitting on your shoulder, helping you understand what's happening in your business or in your, uh, in your defense market, whatever, whatever it is. Perfect, I think that's a great setup. Um, I think we've all kind of mentioned it, but just want to hammer home the point that I think everyone really believes that this is really the early stages of AI. So whatever we're seeing in terms of AI today, it's only going to grow and accelerate from there. So even if there are issues with how chat GBT and things work, it's only going to improve. These things are going to get better and better over time. And I kind of want to address something. It feels to me there's almost three, at least three different ways companies should be thinking about AI. One is at a strategic level. So almost replacing the consultant firms who would come in and tell you how you want to restructure your business, then almost at a tactical letter. How do you, you know, tactical level? How do you make your production better? How do you make your website better? Things like that. And then I don't think we've yet talked on at all. I would love if you have some thoughts on it is incorporating into your products, right? Are you going to be driving AI into your products to make your products better and more interesting? And I'm not sure if that's the only ways, but I feel that there's at least multiple levels and projects that could be going on. I don't know if either of you want to comment on that. Yeah, so you know, remember, any kind of application of technology involves people, process, and technology. And to get to Mike's point earlier, you have to look at your processes and what you want your outcome to be, your business outcome. And sometimes with technology, it's hard for people who are developing strategy or looking ahead to see the art of the possible with the technology. And because it's moving so fast, like we talked about, right? And so you really have to look at what are those technologies that are those transformational technologies, not just a novel technology or a novel capability. And AI is one of those. So how do you apply that um, to every business line? And in businesses, you start small. You know, you look at your processes that are the most impactful, the ones that have the biggest impact on your customers or money or, or your, your bottom line or whatever. And you start with those processes and you do a little bit at a time. You know, you move fast, you move out fast. You can't sit there and admire this problem because everybody else is moving. And you don't want to be Sears uh, in an Amazon world, right? And so you've got to move forward with this now. But start small on one of your key processes and apply some of the AI algorithms to that to make it more efficient, to make the quality better, to make the customer experience better. Then when you get these large data sets, companies can also look at how they can monetize their data by reselling it to others for potentially purposes that they would never even imagine someone might have used it for. Because um, to, to the point of when you have these large data sets that AI is using, the more data it has, the better it'll learn, the smarter it'll learn, the faster it'll learn, the better decisions it'll give you to, to, to act on. Yeah, hey, if, if, if I could just pile on, I mean, this, this is an example I use with commanders all the time uh, in, the, in the department. When a commander, you know, a decision maker, somebody who, you know, has responsibilities and is trying to optimize their output, whatever that function is, um, I, I, would ask, I would ask that decision maker, if if you knew X, 
what could you make a better decision? What is it that you need to know if to, for you to make a better decision right now? And in a military context, you know, a commander might say something like, well, gee, uh, you know, I have a tough decision to make on the battlefield here. I would like to know where the enemy is, right? I, I think I could make a much better decision if I knew where the enemy was, is. We can use artificial intelligence and intelligence surveillance and artificial intelligence to identify objects and identify threats on the battlefield. So now artificial intelligence can always be monitoring those data feeds and tell you when something, uh, you know, that's threat related pops into your, you know, into your, into your decision space. And so a commander will say, oh, wow, that's great. You now have automated my availability of this, you know, this threat information. So then the next question is, okay, you have the threat now. What else would you like to know to make a better decision? Well, I'd like to know, uh, you know, my, my fuel posture. I want to make sure I have enough fuel for the operation I'm planning over the next week. And so you, you automate and you use artificial intelligence to track and report your fuel levels and your fuel availability and the, the, you know, the consumption rates and all those sorts of things. So now the commander has, you know, not only a better sense of, you know, his own decision environment that he's trying to make, but all of the components that make those, those decisions actionable, make, make execution prop, uh, you know, uh, possible. And so think about it through the same, it's the exact same thing. If you're making cookies in a cookie factory, if you're, you know, if if you're if you're uh, you're providing services at a certain rate, if you're selling products and you're monitoring the, you know, the costs, like all of these things are variables that machines can monitor and inform you in a better way, so you can make better decisions, like on the spot, instantaneously. It's not magic. It's just it, it's just machines helping you in the cognitive space because you have too much data for your your own eyes and your own brain to work that through. It's very simple when you think through the lens of process. How should I actually be doing this? What data could help me make better decisions? Artificial intelligence is just a manifestation of that on a computer. It's software driven capability that helps you your organization, your people perform with much greater productivity, much greater efficiency, and, uh, and the ability to really track their environment and learn a lot from that environment. That's great. I think we're going to come back to some of those points, particularly on the efficiency. Kind of wanted to give a little bit of pushback now. I guess one of the, there's two areas of concern I hear, and we'll kind of address them separately. But one is, you know, what are the potential, one of the pitfalls we hear about is the potential cost of converting your data into a usable form. How much is this going to cost to get data into usable form? How much is it, you know, going to be to maintain that? Do you have the data? Is it ongoing? So I think there's some question about, will this be a prohibitive cost? Is that a good argument against it? Or is that something that people just have to get the, work their way through? I, I, I would say, I, do you collect data today in your business operations? Do you know what your sales figures are? Do you know how much you're paying for the goods that you're, that you're selling? Do you know the rate and the process, you know, the flow, uh, your, your throughput? Do you know those things? If you know those things, it's because you have that data. So now it's actually quite simple. If you have that data environment, your comptroller certainly does. If you have that data uh, in your hands, now the machines allow you to do these kind of things in an automated way. And then, and once, once you once you start to automate some of these processes, it becomes much easier to integrate processes. So if you're going to have a cost increase that you you know that you can see is going to you know hit your you know hit your uh, your, your your production line. Uh, you know, in the next couple of weeks or in the next month, well, you can start to plan for that. You can actually start to forecast. Well, what you know, what price do I need to sell then at the you know at the other end when our you know when our when our production run is complete? You can actually start doing this in in informed ways. And when you do that, your productivity explodes because you know when you have problems. You can forecast when you're going to have uh, issues that you have to address, and you can be prepared for those kind of things. Artificial intelligence is 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 a is a is a good angel sitting on your shoulder to help you understand how you can keep your business optimized. And if you're in a physical space, it's a, it's especially in, uh, it's especially valuable. And you know what I, what I would add to that is you know behind any artificial intelligence uh, effort, you got to have a data strategy, and you got to have understand your data environment and what's available and what are the single source of truth for data or the authoritative data sources that you're using. Um, you can use AI 
over time to help you learn which are the bad data elements. But, you know, we use a phrase in AI world where we say, hey, it matters where your AI went to school, you know. So your algorithms are going to train to a certain data set. So you want to give it enough of the best data that you can to get the best decision out. So you do have to be cognizant of the data you're using. For example, in the Department of Defense, I have what we call data jackassery going on. There's all sorts of data all over the place, different formats. It's hard to get your arms around. So a lot of it's duplicative. And so, you know, you do need to have some sort of strategy for you know, your critical lines of operation, what you want your outcomes to be is what are the best data sources I'm going to initially use my AI to, to train to, um, and then use to make those decisions. And then you can add in other data sources later and the AI will get more sophisticated as it learns over time, which data are biased, for example, which data are bogus or maybe not time relevant anymore, whatever the criteria are. And it can weed out those data as it gets smarter on the system. That all makes perfect sense. And I think, you know, a lot of it sounds just like what we'd naturally do anyway is just a more sophisticated way of doing it, right? We all want data, the better data we have, the better we can do our analysis. And this is just going to kind of take that on an exponential scale. The amount of data that we'll have is almost too much for us to process. So the machines come in is kind of how I'm taking a lot of this, which makes sense. And then I guess the other bit of pushback we get on AI, it's almost twofold is, well, what if AI just tells you things that you already would have come up with or know What's the value there? Was the expense worth it? Or the flip side, I think this is probably the more tricky one, is if AI tells you something completely contradictory or very out of the box, will you follow it? If you follow it, will you know you're following it, why you're following it? And I think those are kind of two answers that it's almost two sides of coin, right? Either AI tells you something you think you already know, so what was the value? Or AI tells you something you don't know, but then you don't trust or believe or follow through with it. Do you experience those questions? How are people reacting to that? Yeah, there's, there, for example, there's some real concern when it comes to, for example, when you see a lot of the regulatory bodies talking about what they're going to do with AI, you know, they want to establish guardrails, like, like what if you're, what's the liability if the AI causes harm? You know, how are you going to prevent AI from leaking information uh, in, a, in a way that it's not supposed to or using information in a way that's not supposed to? Or getting AI hallucination is when it actually just flat out lies to you. Um, if you didn't get a chance to see it or your audience didn't, there's a 60-minute segment probably about a month ago on AI. And I would encourage everybody to, to see that and go back and watch that because it's very, very, very telling about how AI can be used. But um, you will see, Peter, that, you know, AI is not perfect. You know, it's going to learn as it goes along and it will get closer to perfection as its data sets become better, as it learns better, as it, um, you know, figures out how to uh, interpret things in a different way. Again, AI is adding the reasoning and learning pieces that's more than just machine learning of being predictive of, of something, you know. So it's adding an element of intelligence that a human would add. And will it ever be as good as a human? I think it'll exceed human capacity, honestly, because compute power with quantum computing and things that are coming will just be so much faster, better, stronger, and be able to crunch more data. Um, and sometimes disparate data that you don't think is relevant to your decision very well could be. And as it crunches wider breadths of data, it's going to come up with things that you might not have not have anticipated, Peter, or that may run contrary to what you know, because your brain is limited at the capacity that it can process all that or that it can see all that. Whereas the, a quantum computer can see much, much more. And so you have to take things like that and be a little uncomfortable and understand what your risk would be. What is your risk tolerance for trusting the AI? And there's a couple models out there that companies should look at. So the NIST, the National Institute of Standards and Technology put out an, IA, an AI risk management framework in January of this year. And they actually have a glossary of terms, too, which is really helpful. And they also have a um, playbook that you can use that gives you examples about how to do this in your organization. So I would encourage you to pull that out. And don't just give it to your IT guys. Give it to the ops folks in your organization. Give it to the CFOs. Give it to the CIOs and the CTOs, everybody. And have them look at it in terms of, okay, as, as an overall strategy for our company, how are we going to manage risk? How are we going to talk about it to our board and our shareholders and our customers and internally? Because some of the processes you may do may just to be help inter with internal processes even, right? And also MITRE actually just a couple days ago uh, came out with a, a sensible regulatory framework for AI. So that's another good one to look at to see, you know, how might you regulate and third-party audit or certify your AI, you know, um, and the computational power that goes along with that. So 
So again, you are going to come up with situations that you've never heard of or that make you uncomfortable. What is your risk tolerance? And what are you willing to accept to try to go ahead forward with on the opportunity, you know, the opportunity perspective that it may turn out to be the best thing. And you may be now the Netflix in a blockbuster world, right? That sounds great. Um, I think we lost general for a moment. So um, I did want to, the other area, um, we'll turn over to some uh, audience questions in a second. Um, one last area I want to cover, because I think it fits very much with Academy is, where do you see this in the military? How do you see this affecting domestic politics and international relations? Is there is this going to change the world in all sorts of ways? Are we at advantages, disadvantages, vis-a-vis -vis other countries? And of, what's your thought there? Yeah, so I think um, obviously there'll be business advantages. And anytime as a nation you have a business advantages on a large scale and your economy is doing well, then that's a national strategic advantage if your company, if your, your country is making a lot of money and doing really well, right? Um, so let's talk about it from the economic standpoint, which is one of your elements of national power, right? So you will see this, which is why in May the EU and the U.S. committed to deepening cooperation on technical issues, including things like AI, uh, G6, uh, um, G6 5, uh, 5G and uh, 6G, quantum computing, um, um, and uh, encryption, right? Um, because they see that this is very important. And, and they actually came out with a joint roadmap on the evolution and measures of tools for trustworthy AI and risk. That's what they called it. So you see uh, countries getting together because they're recognizing this, right? They're recognizing it in places like India, EU, Japan, Korea, um, uh, across the globe, right? Where you're seeing something interesting happen is, you know, a lot of innovation takes place in the United States, and people think we have the uh, supremacy on innovation. Um, we have a lot of innovation, but we're not the supremacists. I would say the supremacy issue is not a long, no longer just the United States. You know, in China, where they can produce uh, computer scientists and data scientists at the rate of like 10,000 to every one we can produce here. You know, that's a different dynamic. And they have invested in China, for example, like I talked about before with their digital China plan, which has been going on since Xi Jinping was there back working that 20 years ago, way before he was even in charge of everything, right? So this is a personal uh, um, aspiration of his, as well as a national strategic aspiration to be the leader in quantum computing, to be the leader in AI. And if you have those, and in encryption, and if you have those things together, remember we talked about that kind of convergence of technology that becomes transformational? You have those three things together, and then you have that infrastructure, that platform in place to do it. And and in China, it's a little easier because they control all the money, they control the regulations, they can tell everybody what to do, right? Um, so they can use that in a way that builds their economy, helps their military in a way that we have to rely on a whole bunch of different companies to work together in the United States and 50 different states with different regulation. You know, if you're an insurance company and you want to put um, AI uh, onto state policy development, you have to make sure that complies with all the regulation in 50 different states. I mean, that's a big pain in the butt, right? So there's different considerations in a country like the United States, and we may have to simplify some of our regulation and some of our oversight in different ways than we do today to make us still be competitive and be able to leverage and not limit innovation in AI, where other countries like China that are more authoritarian um, can use it in different ways. And I will tell you, China is more interested in using AI to control their own people than they are for global dominance right now. But uh, that's a separate topic. But I mean, you know, what they really want to do is control their internal population, have no unrest, right? And they're using AI for that in a big way. Um, but they're also doing it to be a global leader. They have stated they want to be the global leader in AI by 2030. And so you'll see sort of what's happening in like, like that EU um, uh, a U.S. conference recently where they were talking about how do we get our arms around this and how do we work together and how do we get academia involved and all these other organizations that can help. So, so again, Peter, it's a very complicated thing. And I think countries with that try to regulate their way out of this or regulate their way into it are going to fall behind. And they're in the world where the technology is moving so fast, you cannot do that. That all makes sense. I think I'm definitely a little bit nervous about even our own upcoming elections and things like that. But just the general ability to spread misinformation seems to be growing rapidly. And, you know, you go back a year ago, it didn't take much intelligence to figure out this is a bot responding to or retweeting something. And it was very obvious, like what might be a human kind of response. And with interactive GP, feels like they're going to make better and better real sounding bots, more realistic information sharing. 
addressing questions and is it going to become increasingly difficult to figure out what's real information, what's misinformation, and at what point can misinformation feed on itself? It feels like we're heading very rapidly, at least in <laughs> to that sort of an issue. Yeah. Well, 100%. And you can see how unsophisticated our audience is now, because they'll believe any kind of shenanigans that get out on the internet, even bad deep fakes, deep fakes, you know, where someone looks like they're saying something, people believe it. Um, and it can make them rush to the Capitol and do stupid things, right? <laughs> um, and so it's really interesting to see that there's a, it's a, there's a phrase called combat, combating foreign information manipulation and interference, uh, which relates to disinformation campaigns that was also addressed at that EU-US conference, because they see that with Russia now too, with what's going on with Russia and Ukraine, how Russia, Russia's always been masters of information operations and disinformation forever, I mean, for years, right? Now they have a different way to do that. And if they start to leverage more sophisticated AI capabilities to do that, then they can have a, a very broader political influence, not just within those two countries, but with other countries that are maybe supporting NATO that they don't like, or maybe that will be in more in support of China, who's been sort of their ally, right? And so you will start to see those disinformation campaigns become so sophisticated, Peter, that it will be almost impossible to tell hey, did the New York Times actually put that out? Or was that a fake? You know, it's going to be really, really hard for people to discern that. It's a little bit scary, especially when it feels if yeah. people were able to succeed with the old misinformation and people could kind of take that and run with it. Right. What'll happen with this? Um, you know, I think before we go to some kind of, you know, audience questions, I really kind of look at this right now as it's ultimately going to help decision makers, right? That's going to be the biggest thing, whether it's a strategic level, tactical level, someone responsible for designing a website, you're just going to have more and more tools, more and more things to make your job faster and easier. So you should get some great efficiencies. And I think one worry that comes up is, okay, well, is that going to displace workers? What's going to happen to, are we going to have this world where relatively few employees are needed? So we get these efficiencies, yet people are put out of work. And I think when we've talked preparing for this, and I tend to agree is, it might not be obvious what the new jobs will be, but in general, when we've had these transformation type or transformational type technologies, it creates new industries, new jobs. There's the efficiencies yeah. get used up. Any thoughts on that? What the risks are there? What the opportunities are? Yeah, yeah, jobs are going to go away. And it's interesting in this technology, um, white collar jobs will go away. You know, when the, when the automobile came along, it was, you know, blue collar jobs, essentially what you would think of people who did horseshoes and stuff like that, right? So th there were a lot of technology upgrades replaced workers in a way where we put robotics in place or digital or automated things or whatever, call centers, you know, now they're, you know, automated on the phone. You don't even talk to a human most times and you get things resolved on the web. And so a lot of things have, have gotten rid of blue collar jobs or people who would be sitting physically doing something, right? But this also creates opportunity, you know? So while like the Gardner uh, group uh, predicts like by 2025, 10% of all data will be generative AI created data, right? It's less than about 1% right now, but that's gonna affect people who do, um, who write for a living, you know, people who write uh, policies for insurance companies, people who write medical documentation, you know, all those kind of folks, right? And so, you know, by 2025, there's an estimate that 50% of all drug discovery and development will be done using generative AI, for example, right? And by 2027, 30% of all manufacturing will use AI in some component. That is going to displace some people. But what's interesting, Peter, is I, re I recently visited John Deere, uh, one of their uh, headquarters plants out in the Midwest. And, you know, they automated everything on this line. And they use AI and they use big data and they have like, I don't know, 20 million sensors on these big combines that they build, right? And what was interesting is I said, boy, you must have gotten rid of a lot of jobs. You know, the guys, you know, putting widgets on the thing, right? Because they got all these robots doing stuff, right? Even painting. And I said, you must have gotten rid of a lot of jobs. He's like, yeah, but we actually created 2,000 other jobs that were related to other things, related to more data scientists, you know, people who now fix robotics and stuff. So, you know, with, as with any technology, there's going to be offsets and there's going to be people who are affected negatively and some who can be retrained and some who cannot. I mean, those skill sets to be a data scientist is not the same person who used to answer the call on a telephone. You know what I mean? Um, some people have the capacity for that or the willingness to do that. Some don't. So you will see displacement of the workforce, Peter. Yes. And it will be in areas where they didn't have it before. You know, a lot of college educated white collar workers are going to get displaced by generative AI and some of the AI technologies that are coming uh, because 
you won't need them anymore to do the initial writing. And frankly, you may use them as an augment for the next several years to help them write it faster, better, smarter. But in the future, they'll write it so faster, better, smarter that you could probably take the risk of the 0.1111% that got bad. You're just not going to have a human that you want to check it anymore. Now, when it comes to life or death situations, like I, you know, I didn't address your question about the military and AI, but when it comes to life or death situations, say medical or military, you know, then it becomes an ethical question for our nation or for the world, frankly. Will you allow the computer to make that decision when it has to be made in a split second, either in the operating room or who gets what surgery or who's eligible for whatever? Or in a military sense, when we have hypersonic weapons that are traveling at such a high rate of speed that maybe you don't have time for a human to say, okay, shoot that, you know, shoot that weapon back at them or put this protection in place. You're going to have to let a machine make that decision because waiting that split second may be the matter of that missile hitting or not. And especially if your adversaries are allowing machines to make those decisions um, with a very high degree of accuracy, higher than a human could make it then, you know, you have to ask yourself, okay, at what point, where's the tipping point there on the ethics where we would allow them to do that? And honestly, Peter, when you look at, you know, where people, you'll see the arguments today, like every time a Tesla crashes, right, people will say, oh, well, that's just proof that, you know, you can't have an unmanned vehicle um, because they're so unsafe. Look, it just ran over a kid, right? Well, how many other kids were run over by humans that day? Probably like exponentially because of bad driving and bad decisions, you know, exponentially larger number. And so you really have to think about, okay, where, where the nation does our ethics um, start and stop when it comes to life and death decisions? Yeah, that was great. I, that deer trip was awesome. And I, I do think that was one of the cases, too, where you're really seeing them incorporate more and more into the product that they're selling. The product isn't just a tractor or a combine. It's a combine that's being highly efficient. It's taking information that isn't easily processed by humans to make the, the vehicle itself more efficient. So I think that's really... Interesting, exciting. I think, you know, one thing when you talk about both the military use of AI and this kind of, I guess, fast reaction AI type of things, right, where a decision has to be made quickly, you know, I, I feel, and I don't know where this will all come out, but, you know, if we look at our legal system, right, our legal system is basically, we would rather have, you know, nine guilty people go free rather than one innocent person go punished. And I think that's laudable and it's great, but it does feel like it potentially leaves us with their hands tied behind their back a little bit when we compete with countries who don't care about life in that same way, that they don't have those sorts of checks and balances and may err to the opposite side, that they don't care whether nine innocent people go to jail so long as not one you know guilty person ever, ever goes free. So I think that's something we're going to be battling a little bit with. We had one question. I'm not going to spend too much time because it scares me a little bit, you know, where we're going to head with bond trading and new issuance in our world. Um, I do know that I checked chat GPT pretty much every week to see whether it thinks the market's overbought or oversold. So far, it hasn't been able to tell me that and says it's not supposed to do that sort of thing. But clearly, we're headed that direction. And to be honest, that's one reason I'm kind of hosting this call is normally I try and be a panelist, but I don't feel I know enough yet about AI, how it's impacting things to really be an intelligent contributor. But I want to learn. I want to ask these questions because I feel it's going to be an important part of my job is harnessing more and more data faster and it does let us get efficiencies. So hopefully by the time we have a second or third of these ones, I can be on your side and help answer some questions more intelligently for what it means about companies. But I think it's incredibly important to get up to speed. It is going to change things that have been, you know, very human. Um, and it sounds, I guess, let's bring this up. It's been a question. I think it's really lurking in everyone's mind. Okay, how far away are we from a Terminator or Matrix type world where the machines control everything? Well, it's interesting. Uh, so a friend of mine, she's a director in Hollywood and a writer, and she was really concerned about the generative AI. And um, I'm like, well, you should be in your business. You know what I mean? Um, and when it comes to the, you know, at what point, you know, like, what are you doing, Hal, 2001? You know, you're not going to turn off the power. I won't let you, right? I mean, that's the thing. This is always going to be controlled by computers, and you can always turn off the power. And, you know, if it ever came to a dystopian thing, there are ways to, I mean, to do quantum computing and computing in general requires a ton of power, requires a couple things. I mean, there's, there's ways that if it ever became dystopian, like in the movies you see like that, that humans would do something. But you can also use the AI to police itself, right? You can have algorithms written so it polices itself, looks for bad behavior, audits things, tells you when things aren't right. Um, and uh, for example, uh, so like we talk about using it in cybersecurity, right? 
it's going to be a tremendous boon for cybersecurity because there's so much telemetry data in cybersecurity that like monitors networks and see where there's small perturbations that a human couldn't catch, right? And then you could put in place things that would automatically maybe block a bad guy or stop something from happening, right? Um, but by the same token, bad guys, um, hackers, that's a cheap tool for them too, you know? I mean, how much does it cost to build an aircraft carrier? $13 billion. How much does it cost to build a hacker? About, you know, probably less than 10,000 bucks, you know what I mean? A thousand bucks. I mean, so when you think about how they're going to use it too, you always have to assume that people will use it in a nefarious way and how you have measures in place, guardrails in place to stop, help catch that and to um, have place things to mitigate that, that could be automated even. So like in cybersecurity, things happen so fast, you would want those processes automated so that the bad guys, when they're doing stuff, the AI helps you turn something off or block something or protect your network or your data or your people in a way that's um, fast and meaningful. And so, again, the AI can be used in both contexts, not just to, you know, in the business lines or whatever function you're trying to do, but then to audit, you know, how do I make sure that it's doing the right thing? And think about, too, like, you know, biases. Um, you know, when they did some basic uh, AI machine learning back in the day with language translation, they had a program that translated, they were doing a test where they were translating English to Turkish and Turkish back to English, right? And when it, in Turkish, they used the same pronoun for male and female. And so the, the phrase that went in in English was, um, John is a nurse, right? It got crunched in the little machine learning thing and came out, Joan is a nurse. Because the person who wrote the algorithm had a bias that only women could be nurses. Well, John can't be a nurse. He's a dude, right? And so if you have those biases built in, you need a, some sort of, or not built in, but that you, they're unconscious. You're not even aware of them, but they could lead to bad decisions. You have to have things built in place and use the AI to help you overcome those. So you don't get to those situations where bad decisions or bad things happen, or you get to the Terminator kind of decision. The one thing I will tell you, though, is the merging of computing with humans will become way different than it is today. And you see that with Neuralink, with uh, Elon Musk and stuff, but guys like uh, Ray Kurzweil, who's a futurist who invented speech recognition software, has for years been touting the uh, concept of singularity, where the computer and the human merge. You know, in the future, I think within probably 10 years, Peter, I'll probably be able to put a chip in my head and know how to play the piano without ever having to practice. I mean, I think that is the world we're going to, you know what I mean? Um, and and um, so I think that people need, need to be ready for that. And as with any technology, even though this is the, the difference nowadays is that it moves so fast, right? But you need to be agile and you're going to adapt. Humans adapt. And so that's what we'll continue to do. So I don't think people need to be worried about dystopia just yet. I think that's reassuring and kind of keep thinking it's not a good webinar if we don't mention Matthew Broderick. So it's maybe like the, what's the movie, the let's play a game where they teach the machine that nuclear war is actually a bad thing and it shouldn't launch it. So you know, there's hope. And I, I have to say, and it comes through in some of the questions still, even I think we're seeing, so I'm not going to address them directly, but even after all of this, I, I'm still struggling a little bit to understand exactly how we define what went from faster and faster processing, more and more better information processing to true AI. Like, I get that we're getting more and more data. We're getting more and more, you know, machine learning. I kind of really understand, right? It's just regression on a much higher order. What is, is it a subtle gap between that and AI? And once we've breached that, does it really change it? Is it true intelligence? Again, I had a lot of ease understanding the ability to help decision makers, right? That I understand, right? And we're getting more data and we can process more and that's, awesome i think there are risks sometimes when you know as a data science back in the day where computing powers were you know huge the more data you put in it took up your computing time but also sometimes sent you down wrong paths right because sometimes you get an overwhelming amount of data which leads to conclusions that you really could have done with a little bit more fewer pieces of data but i think that's to me still even after this and after we've been talking like what how would you best describe that real gap between decision helping information processing and true artificial intelligence? Or is that just yeah, a dumb so, question? I mean, no, no, it's a good question. And, and people say like, okay, well, why now? I mean, because honestly, when I was going to college like 30 years ago, 35 years ago, um, you know, I had a friend at MIT who was studying artificial intelligence, you know? And, and honestly, back in the day, it was, it was pretty rudimentary. It wasn't very sophisticated. And, and for many years, it was snake oil, in my opinion, you know, people who were trying to sell it. Um, but it's not today. Like when you get on chat GPT and you guys have probably all done it. And if you haven't, I encourage you to get an account. It's actually, 
I did it with my stepdad the other day. He's in his seventies. And I got on there and I just did something fun with him. I was like, Hey, um, what, you know, I was saying, Hey, tell me about how Spider-Man can kick Superman's ass. Right. And the generative APC came back with an answer in like, you know, thir- 13 seconds or three. And it talked a little bit about, you know, Spider-Man and, and who would win. And then it said, but you know, really they should work together. And it had, it added an element that was way beyond just telling me who Spider-Man was and Superman or whatever. And so it's, it's got a nuance now it's got, and there was almost, if you watch that 60 minutes special too, you know, they talk about AI as not being sentient, not having feelings, not having a sort of a deeper emotional understanding to what they're talking about. But I will tell you when they give the example of Hemingway in a poem, a six word poem that he wrote about, um, and it said something like a uh, uh, baby shoes, never worn and something, two other words. Right. And it said, Hey, come up with the rest of the story for this. The chat, GPT chat, I think or they were using BARD at the time, another uh, chat, uh, generative chat program, came back and it laid out a story that talked about a woman who had a, a baby who died and how sad she was and all this other kind of stuff. I mean, that was pretty sentient for a machine to come back with like feelings about what happened there and told it in the story. So you're going to see that increasing level of sophistication. And I think that's because of the technology upgrades in infrastructure, Peter. So to answer your question directly, I think because the computing power is, is getting so impressive, because the connectivity is so much greater, because everything is connected, because everything is producing data. I mean, do you think it's a coincidence when you buy a TV for $300 now that used to cost $1,200? It's because you are the product, Peter. You are what is data is being collected on you every time you sit down in front of that TV. And unless you disable it intentionally, it's collecting data and sending it back. That's the price you pay for cheap stuff now or free stuff now, right? It ain't free. You're the product, right? And so when you sit there and you and your wife are talking about going to Greece and the next day on your Instagram feed, there's all these advertisements for Greece, that's no coincidence, right? And, you know, I used to work at the NSA. I would never have an Alexa in my house. My God, you know what I mean? But everything from your toaster to everything is collecting data. If I have a pint of Haagen-Dazs, because I'm a sailor and I'm not above having a pint, but it's not Guinness, it's Haagen-Dazs, right? If I have a pint of Haagen-Dazs on Friday night, I'll get an email from my doctor on Monday morning that says, Barrett, lay off the Haagen-Dazs, your cholesterol's too high. And I'll be like, how does he know, right? But the refrigerator dined me out. It saw Haagen-Dazs go out, nothing come back in the freezer, and it's telling my doctor she just ate the whole pint. So my only point is, Everything, all those data are enabling this environment. That's what's different. No, it's really interesting. It's back when I was in college, we had to try and design a computer chess game. And what we had to do at the time was create heuristics for what a powerful board or a good board looked at. And then you could do a couple moves ahead and you were trying to use these heuristics. And that's why I think in those early days when you had computer chess, it could be that a person doesn't play a lot of chess, but someone who played chess would figure out very quickly what heuristic, what this you know, computer was looking at identifying it as a good board and you could trick it into fakely, falsely identifying a path and come back. And over time that got better and better until you had Watson, which could analyze millions and millions of moves and didn't have to use heuristics. And it feels like we're eventually just gonna move to that next level where it just it blurs. You can't even tell what's now some sort of mechanical process versus what is uh, you know, an artificial process. Um, you know, I really want to thank you and everyone for your time. I know we didn't get to answer all these questions. We'll try and respond to some of them um, in the coming days as we go through this. And I think we try to highlight around this. I suspect we'll probably have a follow-on um, on AI in the next month or so. It's truly just, a, I think it is changing and we have to figure it out. And yes, I think we go through parts where it seems hype, where everyone has to announce an AI strategy because your stock has goes up. Just like 10 years ago, I think you had to announce a China strategy, your stock didn't go up. And 10 years before that, you had to announce a dot-com strategy or your stock didn't go up. So there is definitely some hype in this, but it feels to me it's really all about processing and it's going to affect companies at you know, a strategic level, which might be hard to figure out, a tactical level. At some point, you know, when I'm looking at this from a market standpoint, should the entire market trade at a much higher multiple? Because we are going to get these efficiencies that we have not really dreamt about in decades or maybe even our lifetime. So I think that's what we're all trying to explore. We're trying to figure out, I think, you and uh, General Brown really kind of lay a lot of the framework. And this is something we're going to be talking about, just like we talk about China every two or three months, remind people that that's our biggest strategic competitor. I think harnessing AI and figuring out how to use this, what it makes, where your valuations are, 
is going to be crucial for our corporate clients as well as our asset manager clients. So hopefully this was helpful. Hopefully, you know, people come enjoy this. We will send out a replay. We'll try and answer questions. I'll make sure I send out a link to that document that you suggested because that sounded perfect. Um, yeah. And, you know, can I add I, something I think, on that, Peter? Yeah, go ahead. If there's any practical takeaway for the audience, like how do I get started with AI in my organization? That link that you're going to send out to the NIST AI risk management framework puts it in English. Okay, it's not in dolphin speak like we do in the geek world, right? It's in English, and it tells you how to get started with this. And what you you could you should do is go back to your organization and have a meeting with your C-suite, with everybody, right, and at that, that level, and talk about, okay, for us, you know, what are the business lines that we might, we, we might want to focus on first, both for external, what we sell and make money on, and internal, how we can make ourselves more efficient to save money, right? Pick one or two processes that before the end of this year, before December 31st of this year, you have maybe some infrastructure in place. You maybe have some access to some people who can write some algorithms for you. You have access to some good data sets that you can map to that process and write a little bit of AI, um, uh, sprinkle AI on it, if you will, but write some, um, some um, code that can help you with some of those processes, making them more efficient or selling your product better, faster, smarter, that you can then measure, right? And that you're, that the risk tolerance for that would be okay with you. But start with a couple of them now and build on that. Because once you do it, you'll see it's not as hard as you thought. Just like when you play, when you go to use ChatGPT, it may be a little intimidating when you first get your account and you log in, and then you're, you're figuring out, you know, who's best friends with Barbie, Mrs. Potato Head or someone else. You're putting crazy stuff in and getting crazy answers back in a heartbeat, right? So it's not as hard as you think. But you got to get started. So I would encourage everybody on the call to pull that up, have a specific kind of plan for one or two processes that you will look at within your organization, put that element of AI onto it before the end of the year and see how it works for you. That sounds like perfect advice and a great way to end this call. And anyone who wants you know, to reach out to us, feel free to do that. We're here to help you as you're our clients. Thank you. Thank you to everyone who contributed to this conversation. And thank you to our listeners as well. Academy Securities is a service-disabled, veteran-owned investment bank with a social mission to mentor, hire, and train military veterans to develop careers in finance. If you have an interest in connecting with our geopolitical intelligence group directly, please email us at info at academysecurities.com. I'm your host, Andrew Robinson, and I look forward to sharing with you again soon.